0: A show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon
1: Gong. This is episode 35, Imperial Japan Part 5, Imperial Way Buddhism. Today I'm recording from Chicago, Illinois. In most orthodox Marxist frameworks, the economic base shapes and influences and drives the superstructure. The economic base being like Basically, the production of commodities, the methods and means of control of them. And the superstructure is the institutions, cultures, laws, different non productive like organs, right? And so, one of the main insights that Marxism has is that the economic base drives the superstructure more than the other way around. When we look at the Who Financed Hitler series, we were able to see how heavy industry pushed certain social and political formations, while light industry and finance pushed others. All of this culminated with the rise of the Nazi party. In that and every case, it's not to say that vulgar materialism explains everything, but it sure explains a whole lot more than just a really bad case of mass hysteria leading to Adolf Hitler right? And then, of course, you can take essentially a materialist understanding of how, like, spy networks work with, like, the Navy, things like that, right? Now, if this approach, basically that the economic base drives the superstructure, if this approach is accurate, it ought to work for another country, right? Like Japan, And so, apart from the economic base driving these changes in society, many countries have power struggles between different competing factions, different cliques, different segments of the economy, right? Most upheaval, revolutions, and social change are due to these types of power struggles. All history is the history of class struggle, but sometimes it's, you know, the bourgeois class versus the petite bourgeois class, right? It can be just different, like, factions of the upper class fighting each other, you know? A lot of history falls into these different categories. And at its heart, these power struggles between the factions can often be boiled down to usually, like, two blocks of industries. It's very frequently, you know, finance versus heavy industry, and often this is roughly regional, mapping on to where those industries are located. The two factions, and usually it's more or, you know, it's more complicated than this, but like the two factions will seize different bureaucracies and state agencies and churches, corporations, and civic institutions will often align with one or the other. Different classes will, you know, align loosely with one or the other and depending on the country, often political parties will drape over one or the other. In the United States, of course, there's the Yankee cowboy dialectic, which I think had good explanatory power. It's a little out of date now, or just needs to be updated, perhaps. Then there's larger frameworks to try to do this on an international level. Like, I've seen a four establishment factions pattern, which sort of tries to do liberal, conservative, Vatican, Pan-European, and Zionist, which when you get into the international factions level, it gets a lot harder to talk about, but to be sure, any good theory like this has any number of caveats or sub-factions or, you know, asterisks you could put on this that fractalize into infinity the more granular you want to go. That's true of Germany, that's true of the US, Japan, and anywhere, right? There's still value in the theory, though, I think. And there were two main factions in Imperial Japan, separate from the eternal struggles between the classes that certainly did not go away, though that was arguably not the prime mover in this period. The two factions were the Toseha, ha or the Control faction, and the Kodo-ha, or the Imperial Way Faction. Now, I will go deeper into these factions in future episodes, but a simple explanation would go something like this. Kodo, in this context, means Imperial, so Kodoha, or the Imperial Way Faction. They wanted Emperor Hirohito to carry out what they called a Showa Restoration, which was a hypothetical return to more direct rule under the Emperor, like the Meiji Restoration was. And this wasn't necessarily as, like, outlandish as it sounded, right? Like, in living memory, roughly, the Meiji Restoration happened, so, like, this isn't, like, that hard to envision. In their understanding of it, it would would ideally be, like, either a return to a pre-industrial or at least a pre-westernized Japan. It was oriented sharply against the Soviet Union above everything else. In order to get there, the Imperial Way Faction wanted to purge or literally kill all the bureaucrats, politicians, liberals, and socialists, and businessmen that stood in their way. They were opposed to high finance and Zaibatsu alike, and they were more aligned in attacking and colonizing Korea, Manchuria, and China than attacking the Western powers in the Pacific. Would you be surprised to know that a lot of the money funding The Imperial Way Faction was tied up in the fishing and mineral rights of Manchuria. Economic base, right? The Toseha, or Control Faction, was arguably always more in power and more reactionary in the, like, non-political sense. Like, the Control Faction was defined by the existence of the Imperial Way Faction. They happened to be the thing the Imperial Way Faction opposed. Koseha wasn't even a term that they used for themselves. Only the Kodoha called them that. Now, what the control faction was, was an overly bureaucratic and corrupt clique that worked hand-in-glove with the Zaibatsu, the major cartels of Japan, and most of the existing political parties. The control faction opposed direct or immediate war with the Soviet Union, They were mostly more cautious about colonization in Korea, Manchuria, and China. Though they were in favor of colonization in those areas, they were just more reticent to go all in, right? Both factions shared major similarities. Both believed in a strong sense of patriotism and loyalty to the emperor. Both were comprised of vigorous militarists. Both factions wanted to reform society. Both were skeptical of representative democracy and of party politics. Both were fundamentally right-wing, though arguably the Imperial Way faction was closer to a sort of Japanese fascism. While the control faction was more conventionally, like, conservative. They both wanted to end democracy in Japan, which is why Japanese democracy ended, basically. They both wanted to colonize other countries in Asia and go to war, which is why both of those things happened as well. Where they differed was in their understanding of what must be done in order to revitalize Japan. The Imperial Way Faction wanted to have like an actual revolution, which would entail killing many of the elites, like the Zaibatsu, while the Control Faction thought that the Zaibatsu were needed in order to increase Japan's military, industry, you know their economy the factions differed too in which targets they thought were most important oh and did i fail to make clear that the imperial way faction was largely fueled by petite bourgeois resentments while the control faction was mostly driven by the zaibatsu's economic needs the economic base drives it all yet again also i think i go into this in the future but The control faction was more dominated by finance, right? But very curiously, the control faction was the faction that wanted war with Britain and America. You would think that they would have been more chummy, but like, perhaps they had a better understanding of uh, how British capital rules and how U.S hegemony was cutting off their oil supply, you know, and so on. The economic base drives all yet again. All of this is context for understanding what Zen Buddhism was doing during, before and during Imperial Japan. Let's look at Soyan Shaku, who was already a Zen master of the Rinzai sect. He was notable for being the first Japanese Zen master to visit the United States. In 1893, he went to the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago. When he was there, he gave a speech translated by a young student, D.T. Suzuki. In 1906, Soen was invited to travel and minister in Manchuria. He was invited to do so by the South Manchuria Railway Company. Ding, ding, ding. While he was there, Soen gave a speech called The Spirit of the Yamato Race. He gave this to members of the Japanese colonial administration in both Korea and Manchuria. Yamato, of course, meaning the Japanese race in this context. So in doing this, wasn't unusual, because all of the Buddhist sects, all of the Zen Buddhist sects, were committed to a general policy of maintaining Buddhism's reputation as, quote, protectors of the country. Arai Sekizen, who was the head of the Soto Zen sect, made the following comments in 1925. Buddhism does not absolutely oppose war. Peace is man's natural ideal. It is the highest ideal of man. Japan is a lover of peace. So even if she goes to war, it is always a war of peace. In advocating peace and racial equality, we must not forget the state we belong to real peace cannot be expected if we forget our state in our love of mankind. If we forget our duty to our country, no matter how we advocate the love of mankind, there will be no real peace. Unquote. Institutional Buddhism in Japan had locked itself into ideological support for Japan's imperialist wars by the end of the 1920s. They would go on to provide missionary work and cover in Korea, Manchuria, and China. Now, mind you, there was almost no Zen Buddhist missionary work in these regions prior to the wars, at least not, you know, Japanese Zen Buddhism in these areas, right? And the missionary work was very explicitly about education to create imperial subjects, quote unquote. This also meant a pretext for spying. Nisho Inoue, who we will talk about at great length in future episodes, pretended to be a Buddhist monk in order to engage in espionage work in Manchuria, for example. Priests would engage in pacification activities to identify locals suspected of being opposed to Japanese occupation. And, of course, Buddhist priests were more and more conscripted into the military as chaplains. The scholar, Brian Daizen Victoria, ever salty, he wrote, The Buddhist missions on the continent and the priests who staffed them were representatives of the great empire of Japan. It is hardly surprising to learn that, with the end of the war in 1945, every single one of these missions on the Asian continent, regardless of sect affiliation, collapsed, never to be revived. There was a small but dedicated group of Buddhists fighting this drift into very un-Buddhist militarism. In particular, there was the Youth League for Revitalizing Buddhism, which tried to fight back. This group consisted mostly of laymen, not clergy, and they were subject to strong police harassment from the jump. A police infiltrator was there the day that they formed in 1931 which by the way was during the Great Depression. The Great Depression hit Japan quite hard because they had always been dependent on foreign trade. If that sounds familiar, why yes, so was Germany. Remember when Hitler talked to those industrialists about Germany's reliance on exports? Now, Japan had high unemployment, they had growing labor disputes, increased crime, they had a burdensome and outdated tax system, and rural debt was skyrocketing. It was not an uncommon practice at the time to sell one's own daughter into prostitution, though many farmers instead chose to band together and resist. The Youth League for Revitalizing Buddhism had a statement of principles which contained the following. The following three ideals. We revere Buddha whose character is unexcelled among human beings. We seek to make possible the construction of a Buddha land according to the teachings of faith in and love for our fellow human beings. We recognize that all existing sects are corpses which desecrate the spirit of Buddhism. We look forward to the elimination of this type of Buddhism and the promotion of a Buddhism consistent with the new age. We recognize that the organization of our current capitalist economy is contrary to the spirit of Buddhism and injurious to the well-being of the masses. Reforming this, we look forward to the coming of a new society." The Youth League was the brainchild of a man named Seno Giro, who before founding the organization he wrote when i thought that in the course of fighting for justice this was just the preparation for being taken off to jail i was filled with joy seno accused temple priests of being sermon thieves and he said that they deserved this title because they took the position that social ills and inequalities could be solved if only people would become more spiritually inclined. Yet these same priests assiduously sought their own material welfare by soliciting large donations from the ruling classes, thus becoming their pawns and supporting the status quo. Say No wrote a pamphlet advocating the following, and I quote, As the saying goes, one should not serve new wine from old wineskins. Members of the Youth League for Revitalizing Buddhism should advance resolutely. Carry the Buddha on your backs and go out into the streets. Go out into the farm and fishing villages. The phrase, carry the Buddha on your backs and go out into the streets, became their most famous contribution. The police started censoring the Youth League basically within a month of forming, and over the next five years, they would see various publications either forbidden or forced to be retracted over ten times. Police harassment continued, with Saino and others being beaten by police a number of times. They finally broke Saino in 1936, when he was arrested and charged with being a communist, which was illegal. There was no proof, so the prosecution failed, but then they arrested him and charged him instead with treason, thought crimes, and for planning the destruction of the emperor system and capitalism. Now, there's really never any good defense against thought crimes, so Seineau confessed to them, and of course, torture was still allowed at this time. The police used his confession as proof of a conspiracy and went on to arrest 200 members of the Youth League. They would prosecute 29. Seno served five years in prison for the whole affair. That is what was going on with organized Zen Buddhist resistance to Japanese militarism in the 1930s. Around the same time, in the 1930s, there emerged a thing called Kodo Bukkyo or imperial way Buddhism, which was less a new phenomenon that rather it was like the systemization or codification of previous trends and positions in Zen Buddhism. This can be reflected in an interesting book written in 1937 by a Komazawa University professor, Hayashiya Tomojiro, who wrote a book called The Buddhist View of War. And I quote... In general, it can be said that Chinese Buddhists believed that war should be absolutely avoided no matter what the reason. Japanese Buddhists, on the other hand, believe that war conducted for a good reason is in accord with the great benevolence and compassion of Buddhism. This same book cites a famous passage from the Lotus Sutra, said to be written by the Buddha. This passage says, It is sometimes necessary for a Bodhisattva to kill one or more sentient beings in order to save a far greater number of sentient beings from suffering. This passage was heavily, heavily relied on for basically all Zen Buddhist justifications for their imperialist wars. The Buddhist View of War book argued that Japan was actually the most advanced Buddhist country in Asia. A Zen Buddhist popularizer and radio figure, Furukawa Taigo, he went even further. He said not only was Japan the most advanced Buddhist country in Asia, it was in fact the only Buddhist country in the world. Furukawa also argued when writing about the North China incident, he said that Japan was, quote, presently using the sword in Manchuria to build a second divine country, after Japan, of course, as it would go on to do in China and India. This meant that it would be possible for Japan as a divine nation to transform the world into a pure Buddha land, as spoken of in Buddhism. There are many, many examples from every major and minor sect showing that institutional Zen Buddhism had wedded itself to the state and the emperor institutional Buddhist leaders refused to recognize the possibility of there being even so much as the slightest contradiction between the doctrines of their faith and the Japanese war effort. Let's talk about Bushido. Now, Bushido is an interesting thing. A simple definition of Bushido would be that it is the way of the warrior, a moral code to help guide samurai, It is similar in some ways to European conceptions of chivalry or similar martial professions in other parts of the world. The history of Bushido goes back a long, long time, and it has a complicated relationship with Zen Buddhism. It's kind of like with Shintoism, right, where all three of these things go back a long way and they have influenced each other a long time. But to make a very long story short, Zen Buddhism is and always has been incredibly useful to the soldier, the soldier class, and the ruling class which controls armies. As the scholar Victoria wrote, Zen was introduced into Japan at the beginning of the Kamakura period, at a time when Bushido had risen to power. The simple and direct teachings of Zen coincided with the straightforward and resolute spirit of samurai discipline. In particular, the Zen teaching on life and death was strikingly clear and thorough. Because samurai stood on the edge between life and death, this teaching was very appropriate for their training. They very quickly came to revere and have faith in it. Soto Zen Master Lida Douyin wrote a book, with a chapter called The Perfection of Warrior Zen. It has this passage, There is truly no end to the number of warriors who from ancient times practiced Zen, and it is important to recognize how much power it gave to Bushido. The fact that of late the Zen sect is popular among military men is truly a matter for rejoicing. No matter how we might practice Zazen, if it had no application in today's situation, it would be better not to do it. Are you, at this moment, prepared to die or not? Can you laugh and find eternal peace? Can you face danger without being disturbed? Do you have the great courage required to sacrifice your personal affections for a just cause? I call on you to wake from your sleep. I call on you to discard your desire for fame and fortune. Without Zen, people could not exist without people, the nation could not exist. Would you put the nation at risk in order to seek fame and fortune for yourself? If you cannot bear to forego this, what can you bear to forego? Zen is the general repository for Buddhism. Is not the goal of our practice to save others before we save ourselves? The nobility of spirit expressed in the willingness to sacrifice one's life seven times over, to repay the debt of gratitude owed the sovereign, is purer than the purest snow. Is not sincerity the true essence of the Japanese spirit? Death is not the end of everything. A basic principle of the universe is that energy does not dissipate and matter is preserved. Those leaders who have great strength will ensure the survival of the many. We must take this matter to heart. Warrior Zen requires no more than to become a warrior. In the present and the future, and beyond, it is sufficient to be a warrior, to be lion-hearted, plunging forward and never retreating. This is the perfection of warrior Zen. This passage reminds me of the fascist slogan, long live death. Now, according to that radio popularizer of Zen Buddhism, Taigo Furukawa, who we cited earlier, Bushido had eight key characteristics, and I'll go through them. First, a great value placed on fervent loyalty. Next, a high esteem for military prowess. Then, an abundance of the spirit of self sacrifice. Next, realism. Fifth, an emphasis on practice based on self reliance. Then, an esteem for order and proper decorum. Then, respect for truthfulness and strong ambition. Lastly, a life of simplicity. Furukawa said that there was a massive overlap between Bushido and Zen Buddhism, that the emptiness of self, which Zen Buddhism creates, becomes the driving force behind the self-sacrificing spirit of Bushido. He said that Zen Buddhism, compared to other types of Mahayana Buddhism, encouraged people to practice Zazen rather than to rely on Buddhas or gods, and this was therefore more self-reliant, which fits the virile spirit of Japanese warriors. Furukawa said that Zen Buddhism is intensely practical and ineluctable, which is to say, it cannot be easily put into words. This matches the silent practicality of Bushido, which rejects arguments and emphasizes accomplishments and doing one's duty. Zen Buddhism emphasizes a plain and frugal, almost ascetic life which in many ways matches the conditions that soldiers live under and the martial temperament finally furukawa said that this very selflessness allowed for the emperor to become the very incarnation of selfless wisdom in the universe he wrote that it can therefore be it can therefore be said that mahayana buddhism simply didn't simply spread to japan but was in fact actually created there So, you see that imperial way Buddhism is in some ways deeply heretical when compared to the Buddha's original teachings. The obvious parallel to me would be the perversity of American evangelicalism when compared to the original teachings of Jesus Christ, right? Not to go too far with that metaphor. But what about D.T. Suzuki? What were his views on this? Did he share these views? Did he ever? Like I said last episode, Suzuki started his career defending Zen Buddhism from the claim that it was a degenerated form of Buddhism. Then he spent his later career as a Zen popularizer in the West. Somewhere in the middle of his career, Suzuki wrote a book, which was published by Princeton Press, called Zen and Japanese Culture. Here are some selections from it. Zen walks hand in hand with the spirit of Bushido. Zen is a religion which teaches us not to look back once the course is decided. Philosophically these warriors were sustained because Zen treats life and death indifferently. My words here. So you see that some of the orientalist horseshit about Asiatic types not valuing life actually kind of comes from D.T. Suzuki, who is a crypto-fascist scholar of Zen Buddhism. Suzuki also wrote A good fighter is generally an ascetic or a stoic, which means he has an iron will. This, when needed, Zen can supply. Suzuki went on to argue that Zen Buddhism has no philosophy at all. He said, Zen has no special doctrine or philosophy, no set of concepts or intellectual formulas, except that it tries to release one from the bondage of birth and death by means of certain intuitive modes of understanding peculiar to itself. It is therefore extremely flexible in adapting to almost any philosophy and moral doctrine, as long as its intuitive teachings are not interfered with. It may be found wedded to anarchism or fascism, communism or democracy, atheism or idealism, or any political or economic dogmatism. It is, however, generally animated with a certain revolutionary spirit. And when things come to a deadlock, as they do when we are overloaded with conventionalism, formalism, or other cognate isms, Zen asserts itself and proves to be a destructive force. Suzuki is arguing that Zen Buddhism is basically a spiritual technology, that it's agnostic in a certain sense that it can be wedded to nearly anything, and that it is fundamentally a destructive force. Suzuki continued, writing, There is a document which was very much talked about in connection with the Japanese military operations in China in the 1930s. It is known as the Hagakure, which literally means hidden under the leaves, for it is one of the virtues of the samurai not to display himself, not to blow his horn, but to keep himself from the public eye and be doing good for his fellow beings. To the compilation of this book, which consists of various notes, anecdotes, moral sayings, etc., a Zen monk had his part to contribute. The work started in the middle of the 17th century under Nabashima Naoshige, who was the feudal lord of Saga in the island of Kyushu. The book emphasizes very much the samurai's readiness to give his life away at any moment, for it states that no great work has ever been accomplished without going mad, that is, when expressed in modern terms, without breaking through the ordinary level of consciousness and letting loose the hidden powers lying further below. These powers may be devilish sometimes, but there is no doubt they are superhuman and work wonders." When the unconscious is tapped, it rises above individual limitations. Death now loses its sting altogether. And this is where the samurai training joins hands with Zen. Unquote. So let's wrap up for today. As we go over the points, we can recall that Imperial Japan had two main factions, the Imperial Way faction and the Control Faction. They each reflected different classes, in that the Imperial Way faction was loosely more the petite bourgeois small business owner class, and the control faction was more aligned with the Zaibatsu and the professional upper class, both of whom somehow managed to pick ideologies that happened to fit the needs of their class. Interesting how that happens, right? Then we saw how Zen Buddhism was corrupted by its relationship to the state, from Zen Buddhist masters working for sketchy public private railway corporations, to providing theological cover for blindly serving the nation and killing. Zen Buddhist priests provided a pretext for spying, and they tried to create good imperial subjects through their religious indoctrination from Zen masters to popularizers to scholars, the general consensus was that killing was morally justified when done in the service of Imperial Japan. And not being content with that, they moved more and more into negating outright the contributions of other branches of Buddhism. They more and more insisted that the emperor was the very incarnation of selfless wisdom in the universe, which to me sounds a little bit like protesting too much. Then we saw that the Youth League for Revitalizing Buddhism, which was one of the main organized groups trying to oppose this drift into militarism, they were infiltrated and harassed, censored, and framed from the beginning for being a genuine threat to imperial way Buddhism and the Japanese state. We saw how Bushido has always interacted with Zen Buddhism, Like, that's true for many historical reasons, but also because, as D.T. Suzuki said, Zen has no philosophy and is extremely flexible in adapting itself to any moral doctrine and is a destructive force. You could go through and make similar, though different, critiques of Shintoism, and of course there are big parallels to the perversions of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, but for me, personally... I found it very refreshing and interesting to basically look at how Zen Buddhism was instrumentalized as a form of social control for a different culture and different religion than the one that I'm used to. And now I feel like I can look back at my own society and my own religion and more clearly see what's going on. We're not quite done with Zen Buddhism though, of course I'm not trying to pick on it, but it is A very interesting angle to understanding Imperial Japan. And lord knows I don't feel like I could contribute to just covering Japanese military history as interesting as it may be. Four sources today. Of course I used Brian Dyson Victoria's books Zen at War, Zen War Stories, and Zen Terror. Also Gold Warriors. Also every other book I've cited and more that I will cite in the future. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Check out my Patreon, where I do one-off episodes. It's a great value. You should check it out. Now, I need to be on my way to the Shanxi province of northern China. See you next episode, and God bless.
0: The way to samurai is found in death. Meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily. Every day when one's body and mind are at peace, one should meditate upon being ripped apart by arrows, rifles, spears, and swords, being carried away by surging waves, being thrown into the mist of a great fire, being struck by lightning, being shaken to death by a great earthquake, falling from thousand-foot cliffs, dying of disease, or committing seppuku at the death of one's master. And every day, without fail, one should consider himself as dead. This is the substance of the way of the samurai. Yo, yo, yo those Samurai Showdown. Samurai Showdown. Samurai Showdown. 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 Yo. Hey, DTN, yo. how dare you challenge me? You will die from the tip of my sword today. <laughs> You're too courageous. You must engage. Die. It's born born young lord, raise your sports It's born born young lord, raise your sports It's born born young lord, raise your sports It's poor, poor, young lord, from the, slums, the Golden Claude, talent, twirling one on the baby, split your island Ruth, killer B, Steger, back on the swarm again the Alarm again, Six direction, weapon deflecting, blows connect like opposite sides of magnets, Still fragments, being chipped off with slinging sports slash with the force of being crashed to your dashboard, with no airbag, you drove a 99 Jaguar, Quick to pick a lot, lick a shot. Respect the bloods and a lot. Plus the guard a lot, sagging in the seat, plastic moon beats. Trying to plot his next hit, he took a drag off the eight elements that compose. At McFerry Gas, about to let off this sword in four blast. Trepp his mind focused, meditating, position half lotus. Avid Sport Novas couldn't match his Magnum Opus Deluxe Stroke. Sun move like a ghost, Struggling in the distance, unnoticed like a lamppost. Radar shot precision gunfire, explode to its clips unload. It's the summer I cold. It's born, born, young lord, raise your sword. It's born, born, young lord, raise your sports. It's born, born, young lord, raise your swords. It's born, born, young lord, raise your sports. It's born, born, young lord, raise your, it's born, born, young lord, raise your Time for everyone to go record. It's born, born, young lord, raise your sword. Time for everybody to go accord Trapped in silence, still win. Chrome us, screwed on tight, kept the gunshots concealed. in we attack four fledged. With Chicago door Red bandanas tied tight around our heads, swing with the force of a sledge. Single edged, stainless steel blade, chop the wedge to this analog derelict's head. We even thought that he could go against the truth and the gods and fought back on the will of Allah. You'll be facing the firing squad of a thousand archers out to mark you. the marker, The milk top Scully, King, bullets like jelly beans. Birds in my nest, resting up on the telly scene. Murdering rap, trap to me, it's legal felony. Can't accept what you analog cast be telling me. I get the verbal weapon, won't have the tape for one second to break your back like Big Jack from checking. It's born, born, young lord, so raise your swords. It's born, born, young lord, raise your swords. It's born, born, young lord.